Hi, this is Lily Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. So this week we're talking about sections 106 through 108. And there's a lot of, you know, just business of the church in terms of orders of the kingdom and certainly orders to the priesthood and how those should function that are included here, particularly in section 107. But there are other gems, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this specific order. I think it's well described there, and I think it's a great resource to see how God has an order to his kingdom and how he wants things done and particularly concerning the leadership and the administration of the priesthood. So it's it's really a rich resource that way. And I'm going to talk about a few other highlights in these sections. And I'm actually going to start at the end with section 108, which is a revelation given to Joseph Smith in Kirtland. And this section was received at the request of Lyman Sherman, who had previously been ordained a high priest in his 70 and had come to the prophet with a request for a revelation to make known his duties. That's what the heading says. And then Roger Sherman becomes, you know, a really interesting character when you study a little bit more deeply. What it says about him and the revelations in context is quite quite a tribute. It says, though Sherman loved the saints and had an unwavering faith in the restored gospel, he apparently had doubts about the quality of his own discipleship. The revelation gives us a glimpse of the process Sherman called having been wrought upon to seek out the prophet. The Lord said that Sherman had obeyed my voice in coming up hither, confirming that he had received promptings from the Spirit to seek out this opportunity. The Lord's counsel to, and interesting words here, resist no more my voice, suggests that Sherman had received those impressions on multiple occasions, but had hesitated to act on them, as he experienced a deep and poignant spiritual search to know of his standing before God. In response to that quest, the revelation assured him that his sins were forgiven and kindly told him, and again from section 108, let your soul be at rest concerning your spiritual standing. Now that's a beautiful, beautiful response to this brother, Lyman Sherman. The Lord, very patient here, and but saying, resist no more my voice. Again, you know, he had clearly gotten some impressions that he had struggled with. And then the Lord, you know, makes it clear that your spiritual standing is fine. You don't need to worry about that. Do you remember the story of Gideon in the Old Testament where Gideon is called to lead the armies of Israel against, you know, an enemy army? And he's not sure either. So Gideon takes the lamb's fleece and he asks the Lord to make it known to him by using this sign. And he puts the lamb's fleece outside. By the way, this is recorded in Judges chapter 6 in the Old Testament. And he puts the lamb's fleece outside and he prays to God that the lamb's fleece will have dew on it, but the ground all around the fleece will be dry in the morning. So he puts the lamb's fleece out in the morning, he goes out, and sure enough, the ground is dry, but he picks up the lamb's fleece and it is soaking with dew. And he's able to wring out of the fleece a whole bowl full of water. And then this is kind of charming. I mean, Gideon, this is verse 39 in Judges 6. And Gideon said unto God, let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece, let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. So he's saying, can we do this again? I mean, can we spare one more night before we go out to fight the Midianites and the Amalekites, the groups, that these huge armies from the east that were coming to try to conquer Israel? And so he's like, can we just 
maybe that was just a fluke that the lamb's fleece was wet with dew and the ground was dry. Let's just do it in reverse so I can be sure. And sure enough, verse 40, God did so that night for it was dry upon the fleece only and there was dew on all the ground. So it's not the first time that uh, people, good people, who have wanted to do the will of the Lord and have done the will of the Lord have been unsure about what the Lord is saying. And this reminds me of section nine in the Doctrine and Covenants. We covered that a long time ago, right? But uh, this is where Oliver Cowdery was asking about, you know, the gift of revelation and so on. And the Lord says, you know, section nine, verse seven, behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. Verse 8, but behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind, then you must ask me if it be right. Okay, so study it out in your mind and then ask the Lord. This is the pattern the Lord wants us to, to use. So, you know, this is a great pattern, but where some people get hung up, and I would suggest that these are more inductive thinkers, which is kind of a personality style that I'll describe more later in some different content, but the inductive thinker, you know, is a data collector. So they're always looking for a little more information and they tend to be quite cautious until they get a sufficient amount of information and then they're able to move forward, make conclusions and then take action. And again, there's a spectrum here. So people could be somewhat this way or they could be a lot this way. And you know who you are. I mean, you or maybe your partner or your children or friends or whatever, you know, sometimes might be overthinkers, you know, they think a lot. And they're unsure about where that thinking, you know, lands them because they they're hoping for more data. This is apparently Lyman Sherman, who's a really good man. But he's like, you know, could you just kind of help me be a little more sure about that. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to know about ourselves and recognize that, that those of us who, who may be data collectors and a little bit slower to feel confidence toward taking action need to move forward in faith. And that's what the Lord is saying. Don't resist the promptings that I've given you that you're acceptable to me. Basically, that's what's happening here, or that you have gotten some instruction from me that you followed, but you were unsure and unclear. And, and don't be so unclear. You can trust that prompting. You can trust that spirit. Now, of course, that means it's going to be consistent with the scriptures, with the words of the prophet. You know, if God is going to depart from that, he's going to like send an angel or it's going to be really clear because our revelation from the Lord, you know, is coming from a Lord who does not divide himself. He doesn't speak one answer to one and a different answer to another. At any rate, um, the other kind of personality, a more deductive thinker is actually one who makes decisions rather quickly and sometimes is so intuitive about those decisions that they may not consider all that much data. They might just sort of go on their gut feelings. Now, there's a real advantage sometimes to that intuitive thinking, that intuitive leap, because they can be great in emergencies. I mean, they can take action very quickly when others might be hesitating. However, the Lord also warns them, you know, and says, make sure you study it out in your mind. Don't be so quick to decide that you know what the Lord wants without having considered the salient points. You know, think about it. Use the mind that you have. I talked about this on the Follow Him podcast with Hank Smith and John, by the way, back when we were discussing section 50, and I talked about how clear the Lord is there about, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And when a man reasoneth with another man, he is understood of man, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, I'm going to reason with you. In other words, it needs to make sense. So the Lord is really clear about how we need to use the mind that he has given us and to consider facts, 
to, to think about things, but then to incorporate prayer in that study and then also as a confirming element to feel the spirit to help us move forward. But once we felt the spirit, so the more deductive thinker, in my opinion, the Lord's saying, slow down, think. Don't just don't just spring into action without, you know, at least doing a little pro and con list or whatever the topic, you know, whatever the study is that's required. But on the more inductive thinkers, the Lord is saying, go forward with faith. And that's what he tells Lyman Sherman here. There's something else that's written about Lyman Sherman that's also kind of a tribute. It says from the Revelations in Context, as internal dissension and external opposition join forces against the church, Sherman and his family remained loyal to Joseph Smith. Then Sherman was appointed to the Kirtland High Council, and then he moved far west Missouri, where he was appointed to that high council as well. And then by this time, Joseph Smith and other leaders were in jail, and the saints were trying to get away from the mobs in Missouri. So it was, again, a kind of a desperate time, difficult things going on. And according to Benjamin Johnson, Sherman traveled to visit the prophet in jail. And as a result of that trip, quote unquote, he took cold and became very ill. Interestingly, in January of that year, the First Presidency wrote to Brigham Young and Heber Kimball, the senior apostles, designating Lyman Sherman to fill one of the vacancies in the Quorum of the Twelve. So he had that kind of trust from the prophet and from the Lord that he would have filled a vacancy in the Twelve. However, Kimball wrote later that he and Young visited, Brigham Young visited Joseph Smith and Liberty Jail in February of that year, and that when they departed from Far West, Lyman Sherman was unwell. And a few days after they returned to Far West, Lyman Sherman had died. So they did not have a chance to notify him as of appointment. But anyway, a very good man, a really good man who was somewhat hesitant to, to trust in his spiritual promptings as many inductive thinkers are that are data collectors. And if that's who you are, if that's, that's the way we are, remember that the Lord wants us to go forward in faith and resist not those promptings that we receive that are consistent with his love and his will. I think that's a beautiful little section and tribute to Lyman Sherman, who was obviously a very good man. Now we're going to go back to section 106. We're just going to point out one little thing. This is also not a very long section, but in section 106, verse 4 and 5, the Lord says, again, verily I say unto you, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh, and it overtaketh the world as a thief in the night. We're familiar with that phrase, right? We've heard that many times quoted. Verse 5, therefore, gird up your loins, that you might be the children of light, and that day shall not overtake you as a thief. So an interesting and clear contrast here, the Lord is saying, most of the world is going to be surprised when the Lord comes. It will overtake them as a thief in the night. Pretty picturesque phrase there. But he says that we are admonished then to be children of light so that we don't have the second coming overtake us as a thief in the night. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to tell us the day and the hour. And we know that that isn't going to be something that is revealed. So there will maybe a small element of surprise. In other words, if we're paying attention, if we're doing the will of the Lord, and remember, if we receive light and continue in God, this is also from section 50, we receive more light and that light groweth brighter and brighter to the perfect day. So if we are pursuing light through, you know, obedience to the light that we have and petitioning the Lord, asking, seeking, knocking, etc., so that we can have more light, we will receive more light. We'll be children of light. I love that phrase. Don't you want to be a child of the light? I might have mentioned this before because I love plants and so on. And any time I have house plants, it's just so 
wonderful to see how they seek the light. The plants, you know, the leaves of the plant and the plants themselves lean toward the windows or lean toward the light source. They, they want so badly to receive light. And of course, it's essential for their survival as it is for ours. Our spiritual survival depends on how willing we are to receive light. So if we too can receive light and continue in God, meaning be faithful to the light that we receive, the promptings, the understand the, the words of scripture, the words of the prophet, and we continue in God, we will be children of the light and receive more and more light. And we will not be that surprised at the time of the second coming, though we may not know the day or the hour. It won't be that big a surprise. I think Many of us are looking around and seeing the fulfillment of prophecy on every hand and recognizing that it's coming closer and closer. And I don't mean that, of course, you know, of course, the calendar passes and it's getting closer and closer. But what I mean is that there's more and more awareness amongst so many of us that prophecy is being fulfilled and that things are heating up as we have been told by prophets from the beginning of time. So it's an exciting time to live. I want to share a quick story. Many of you may have heard this, but Winston Churchill went to a boys school called Harrow School when he was growing up. And later when he was the prime minister and during World War II, he went back to visit Harrow School. And that was a big occasion for the boys of the school. And they actually wrote another verse to the school song that talked about Winston Churchill being the leader of the nation and leading them through these dark days because of you know what was happening there in World War II when England was so besieged, especially prior to the time that the U.S. got into the war. At any rate, as they concluded their song and Winston Churchill rose to speak, he said something so beautiful that I think you know can really apply to all of us now as well. Churchill said, Do not let us speak of darker days. Let us speak rather of sterner days. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest days our country has ever lived, and we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us according to our stations, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? I mean, what a great reframe of, of the situation, taking the same situation, but reframing that into a positive and exciting kind of a view of their circumstances. Certainly, World War II, you know, was a nightmare of a time. And yet here is Churchill helping those boys at that school and their leaders to think, you know, we don't have to talk about these as if they are dark days, they're great days. And that we can thank God that we've been allowed to play a part in this. And again, what is our part now? It, of course, is to continue to build Zion to follow the light, to let ourselves be perfected by the experiences and the trials and struggles that we experience. That's what our part is, so that we can become more like Jesus Christ. We can become children of light. We can greet him when he comes and be like him. And that's how we will know him. And that's how we will be known. Just a word here of caution. You know, our leaders have periodically told us that, you know, we shouldn't go crazy in our, in our thinking of like when the Savior will come and we shouldn't obsess about those things. We shouldn't turn into, you know, like really extreme preppers or anything. Obviously, the Lord through his prophets has told us there are things we can do to prepare, but sometimes, you know, we miss the forest for the trees if we get too obsessed. I understand that when, you know, the Visions of Glory book came out several years ago that Cabela's got bought out of tents and whatever because people, really went a little nuts and thought, okay, you know, this is pure revelation from the prophet, which it was not. I liked the book. I thought there were a lot of good insights in it, but I did not 
you know, go to that extreme and think that, you know, we needed to act like it was scripture and then, you know, prepare in some specifically concrete way and, and again, lose our focus on becoming children of light and, and get caught up in some temporal prepping that is less important to God, at least certainly at that level where it, you know, fills all the space and we, we start to, to get a little off balance or maybe a lot off balance. Let's go on to section 107, which is kind of the mother load section in this group of sections. And of course, it's talking about the priesthood. And again, this order, the organization, the administrations, the different quorums, how they are supposed to function, you know, how their decisions are to be weighed and what can appeal those, etc. But anyway, we're just going to talk about some of the highlights again. Section 107, verse 3, before his day, oh, speaking of Melchizedek, the great ancient prophet Melchizedek, before his day, in verse 3, it was called the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. A little detail there doctrinally that many of us remember, but this is where it comes from, that the official name of the higher priesthood is the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God, but then going on to explain in verse 4, out of respect or reverence to the name of the supreme being to avoid the too frequent repetition of his name, they, the church in ancient days, called that priesthood after Melchizedek or the Melchizedek priesthood, a great tribute to a great prophet, obviously. Melchizedek was the prince of Salem, and Salem too was translated like the city of Enoch. So another great prophet and great honor to him in order to avoid the too frequent repetition of the name of our Savior, that his name was designated as a name for this higher priesthood. So pretty amazing right there. We also have some really important information, starting with verses 18 and going on for a few verses, the power and authority of the higher or Melchizedek priesthood is to hold the keys of all the spiritual blessings of the church. 19, to have the privilege of receiving the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, to have the heavens opened unto them. Think of what these words mean. To commune with the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Again, the church of the firstborn is another phrase that is used to represent those who qualify for the celestial kingdom and to enjoy the communion and presence of God the Father and Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. Wow. And then speaking of the Aaronic priesthood, the power and authority of the lesser or Aaronic priesthood is to hold the keys of the ministering of angels Again, you know, it's kind of amazing that we give this to 12-year-old boys. I mean, how great is the Lord that gives this opportunity for boys, just as they're starting to go through puberty, just as they're becoming men, to recognize that the keys that they are given, if they are worthy and if they act in worthiness, can open the heavens as well to the ministering of angels. You know, Brigham Young, and we quote this regularly, right, that, you know, he said that we live beneath our privilege and... It's sad if we don't understand what the Lord wants to offer in any of our callings or in the priesthood offices that are held. Going on with verse 20, and to administer in or outward ordinances, the letter of the gospel, the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, agreeable to the covenants and commandments. So pretty impressive promises given to these men who will receive these callings and these positions in the priesthood, these offices in the priesthood. Then moving on to verse 30, the decisions of these quorums, or either of them, are to be made in all righteousness, in holiness, and lowliness of heart, meekness, and long-suffering, and in faith, and virtue, and knowledge, 
temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. And that is a list of virtues that is really worth, you know, writing down and studying. Just going to make that list again. Righteousness, of course, every opportunity that the Lord gives to us is the promises of those things are contingent on our righteousness. But he also specifies some beautiful conditions here. Lowliness of heart, meekness and long suffering and in faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness and charity. And I skipped the second one, holiness, because that's kind of what it comes to. I love that hymn that we sing occasionally in church, more holiness give me. I feel like that's a great one to review anytime we want to understand how we can become more holy. And of course, it's not a complete list, but there are some beautiful phrases in that hymn that help us understand that we should be and can be striving constantly to become more holy. Verse 31, of course, the promise, because the promise is, so, you know, based on these requirements, the promise is, if these things abound in them, these qualities abound in our priesthood holders, they shall not be unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. I mean, that's kind of a mild way to say it, isn't it? They shall not be unfruitful. They will be fruitful. They will be able to magnify, to, to become, to bless, to serve, to help in the work of salvation for all those whom they serve. Verse 32 says, In case that any decision of these quorums is made in unrighteousness, it may be brought before the general authority of the several quorums. In other words, here's the appeal process. So God has checks and balances. He wants people to, to know that, that these things must be done in righteousness. And if they're not, there is a process by which those things can be addressed. Verses 41 through 43, we're jumping a little bit. This order was instituted in the days of Adam and came down by lineage in the following manner. Verse 42, from Adam to Seth, who was ordained by Adam at the age of 69 years and was blessed by him three years previous to his, meaning Adam's death, and received the promise of God by his father that his posterity should be the chosen of the Lord and that they should be preserved unto the end of the earth. Verse 43. Now this is tender. We're going to talk about this for a moment. Because he, Seth, was a perfect man. Okay, there's an amazing tribute. And his likeness was the express likeness of his father, insomuch that he seemed to be like unto his father in all things and could be distinguished from him only by his age. Okay, amazing. Seth looked exactly like his father Adam. And the only way you could tell the difference was by their age. And even in all things, meaning their behavior, their choices, their faith, the way they administered in their callings. So this is really tender to me. And to kind of explain why, let's kind of jump to the Pearl of Great Price, Moses chapter 5. Verses 12 to 13. Adam and Eve blessed the name of God, and they made all things known unto their sons and daughters. Remember, just before this, they've been taught to make sacrifice unto the Lord, and what the purpose of that, how powerful that meaning is, that it represents the Lamb of God who is going to come and die for all of us. 
So they make all this known to their sons and daughters because they had had many sons and daughters after they left the Garden of Eden. They had many children and they paired off. It tells us a few verses previous, they paired off as husbands and wives and they started to multiply and replenish, you know, all over the land, right? So here they taught these things to their daughters. But in verse 13, Satan came among them saying, I am also a son of God. And he commanded them saying, believe it not. And they believed it not. And they loved Satan more than God. And men began from that time forth to be carnal, sensual, and devilish. And how tragic. Can you imagine Adam and Eve and what they've already been through? You know, these are our first parents. They walked and talked with the Savior in the Garden of Eden. They saw the Father. And they make this incredible choice to bring to pass the plan or to facilitate the bringing to pass of the plan and leaving the garden so that they can have children and that these children then can be tested. So all these children that they have, and who knows how many years, because these kids had grown up and had had children of their own. And when they teach the principles of the gospel to their children, their children don't listen. How heart-wrenching. And here they're thinking like, wait a minute, how is this going to work? Our children need to believe. So what happens next? Well, in verse 16, we read, this is still Moses 5, verse 16, and Adam and Eve, his wife, ceased not to call upon God. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord, wherefore he may not reject his words. I mean, that's their hope. They have this new son, Cain, and they say, you know, let him not reject the words of the Lord. But behold, Cain hearkened not, saying, Who is the Lord that I should know him? So Cain is another child of Adam and Eve that they had this hope for, that you know maybe he will hearken to the words of the Lord, and he doesn't. But verse 17, And she again conceived and bare his brother Abel. And Abel hearkened unto the voice of the Lord. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So, I mean, can you imagine like they must have had so much hope in Abel. Adam needed someone to pass along the keys of the priesthood to. He was looking for a righteous son so that he could, he could pass these incredible keys on so that they could move forward into establishing a righteous posterity, a righteous inheritance and legacy so that the gospel could go forth. And then, of course, we know the tragedy of what happened. Cain loved Satan more than God. And Satan's the one who tells them, make this offering and make it all sacrilegious, you know, throw vegetables in there as if that represents the lamb of God. I mean, it was totally sacrilegious. This was not preferential treatment by the Lord to Abel. It was Satan's counseling of Cain, which was followed by Cain to, to do this really sacrilegious, disrespectful act. And then he kills his brother Abel. So there's one righteous son and he's killed by his brother. You can only imagine the heartache for Adam and Eve. So now, you know, going back or going forward to Moses 6, we get the same information that's in section 107, but reading it here from the Pearl of Great Price in Moses 6, verse 2, Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and he called his name Seth. And Adam glorified the name of God, for he said, God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. In verse 3 in Moses 5, And God revealed himself unto Seth 
and he rebelled not. Can you imagine how Adam and Eve rejoiced in Seth's acceptance of the gospel, accepting the Lord himself, and he offered an acceptable sacrifice like unto his brother Abel. And to him also was born a son called Enos. So anyway, now we have righteous posterity. Just think of the faith of Adam and Eve that, you know, they have all this posterity who don't listen at all. And then they have Cain and Abel and they have hope and Abel and he is killed by his brother. The tragedy of that act is so, I mean, it's just so hard to imagine how they felt. And then they have another son, Seth. And then look what happens. He looks exactly like his father, Adam. Can you imagine how beautiful that is? Verse 10, here again in Moses 5, we get the same information as in 107. And it's so tender to me that the Lord gave them this blessing, this this sign of who Seth was going to be. Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his own image and called his name Seth. I'm just so moved by that. I think how... Kind is the Lord that after all that trial and testing, and it was trial and testing, Adam and Eve knew there needed to be a righteous posterity to go on, and they had to wait a very long time to have a son who would accept the gospel and accept the priesthood and honor it and pass it on to his son. This is, this is tender to me, and I'm so, I'm so moved when I read that description of Seth that back to Section 107, because he, Seth, was a perfect man and his likeness was the express likeness of his father, insomuch that he seemed to be like unto his father in all things and could be distinguished from him only by his age. The tenderness and mercy of of that particular detail just touches me greatly. I think it's incredible how good is the Lord. So, Kind of, you know, coming close to the end here, we're going to talk about verse 53, another important detail that we get here in section 107. Three years previous to the death of Adam, he called Seth, Enos, there's his son, wonderful son Seth, and his son Enos, etc., Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, and Methuselah, who were all high priests with the residue of his posterity who were righteous. And now there is a righteous posterity. Again, just imagine the joy of Adam and Eve, the gratitude for that great blessing. And they, he brought them into the valley of Adam on Diamon, and there bestowed upon them his last blessing. So now we're talking about this sacred place, Adam on Diamon, where this amazing council took place just prior to the death of Adam, the Ancient of Days as he's called in the Old Testament by Daniel. So chapter 7 of Daniel talks about this as well, referring to Adam as the Ancient of Days. And in verse 54, the Lord appeared unto them, and they rose up and blessed Adam, and called him Michael, the Prince, the Archangel. What an incredible spirit. Both of these spirits, Adam and Eve, amazing spirits who clearly were foreordained in the pre-earth life to this great calling. And Michael, the archangel who participates with, with God and Christ, even in the creation. I mean, and it's an amazing, amazing spirit that comes to earth to start with his 
wonderful wife Eve, this the family of man. And as we perform sealings in the temple of child to father, we are really entering this family of Adam and Eve. Those sealings are to seal us into the family of Adam and Eve. And the unrighteous that are in the way in the line will be deleted and we will be in the right family. So beautiful, beautiful detail here. Now, Joseph Smith identified that Spring Hill there in Missouri, close to the Independence area, was the spot of Adam on Diamond. So that is where that great council occurred. Now, this has great second coming significance as well that Daniel in chapter 7 talks about as well that and it's also specified in section 116, which is a very short section that's coming up pretty soon. And I'm just going to jump ahead and say that in that section, it tells us that that's where another council will be held prior to the coming of Jesus Christ the second time. So one of his, you know, as I've mentioned before, it's not just second coming of Christ, it's second comings, plural. And one of those second comings is at this place here near Spring Hill, Missouri, Adam on Diamond. You may know that the church owns that property, and there's a visitor center there. Also, you can visit it and see it. It's a lovely meadow, and, and it's a, a beautiful location. I was teaching adult religion in Las Vegas for several years before we moved to Utah. And one time when we were discussing Adam on Diamond, a sister in the class, and I wish I could remember her name, but a sister in the class raised her hand and shared with us that she had an aunt and an uncle who were retired but had had a landscaping business. And as they put in their papers to serve a mission, they were called to Adam on Diamond, and they were asked to beautify the grounds and to help with some of the planning to, to make that place beautiful. And I thought, you know, how practical is the church? <laughs> I just, I just love those little details because it's like, Hey, the Savior's coming. Let's plant some flowers. You know, let's groom this, this scenery, this shrubbery, whatever. Let's make it beautiful because the Lord himself will come here to, to have this amazing council again with Adam and all the patriarchs, those who hold the keys of the dispensations, all the prophets who've been on the planet. Can you imagine? And each of these prophets is going to render an accounting of their stewardship to Adam and to the Lord Jesus Christ because they are sub-stewards under Christ in the work of bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So, you know, I was reminded of this recent conference where President Nelson shared with us some of his challenge in making the decision to close the temples because of this pandemic. And I'm quoting now from President Nelson. Maybe you remember these words. How difficult was it to make the decision to close the temples? That was painful. It was wrecked with worry. I found myself asking, what would I say to the prophet Joseph Smith? What would I say to Brigham Young, Wilfred Woodruff, and the other presidents on, up to President Thomas S. Monson? I'm going to meet them soon. To close the temples would deny all for which all those brethren gave everything but we really had no other alternative. That really touched me when I heard him say that to us, that, that that was weighing on his mind. And when he says, I'm going to meet them soon, obviously, you know, he's an advanced age now. And so he may be talking of, of meeting them after he passes on to the next side. But it made me think too, that he will be there at Adam on Diamond with all the other prophets to give the keys of the dispensations and the keys of their stewardships back to Adam and back to Jesus Christ. 
So really tender to think that that is in the minds of the prophets, this this honor and and reverence that they hold for the responsibility that is given to them, that they carry with them and for which they will be accountable and they act in a way that they can render those stewardships righteously. Now I'm just going to jump to the end of section 107 and read the last two verses, which are verses 99 and 100. This ends up with an even 100 verses. Wherefore, now let every man learn his duty. That's what it comes down to. Let every man learn his duty. Now that applies to us too, sisters, that each of us in our different callings and our different roles, and particularly he's speaking here to the brethren who receive the priesthood and bless all righteous priesthood holders. We need them. Anyway, again, in verse 99, let every man learn his duty and to act in the office in which he is appointed in all diligence. Verse 100, he that is slothful shall not be counted worthy to stand. And he that learns not his duty and shows himself not approved shall not be counted worthy to stand. Even so. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, great reminder to all of us. We need to learn our duty and act in that, in our different callings, in our roles as husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, neighbors, holding whatever responsibilities we have. Let us learn our duty and not be slothful servants so that we too can be counted worthy to stand. Okay, brothers and sisters, let's go out there and build Zion. (laughs) Take care.